open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. While you're finding that, I was uh, just uh, curious to know whether you know the difference between the word incredible and incredulous. Maybe if you could pull out a piece of paper and write the definition of those two for me in a little quiz. Now, I'll give them to you. I'll go ahead and give you the answers for that. Incredible is something that is so extraordinary that it seems almost impossible. While incredulous refers to someone who is skeptical or unwilling to admit something or accept it. Incredible and incredulous. Well, this morning we come to a passage that gives us an apt opportunity to 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 use both of those words in a description because what we have in Matthew chapter 21 uh, in verse 33 through 44 is a a further demonstration of the uh, incredible sight of the incredulous people of Israel. Their absolutely stunning refusal to accept what ought to be so obvious before their eyes. And Jesus is driving home that point in our passage today through yet another parable. This comes, you remember, in the context of a whole series of interactions and conversations and parables that he's giving on his last day of public ministry on a Wednesday before he's crucified uh, the, 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 that, that following Friday. He'll be arrested on Thursday and then tried through the night and then eventually crucified on Friday. But before all that comes, we have the record of his last day of public ministry that stretches for us from chapter 21 all the way through to chapter 23 of Matthew, one of the most detailed discussions of any day, any particular day in the life of Jesus. And it is filled, as we've said many times, with controversy, with confrontation, with questions, with resistance, really, from the key leaders of Israel and even from the people. Even though Jesus has given them every reason to believe, he's given them every evidence of his own righteousness, of his own truth, of his own power, even while he's been in Jerusalem, he has healed yet again other people right in the middle of the temple. And throughout his ministry, he's done the same thing over and over and over again. He even raised Lazarus from the dead just a few weeks before that. And on top of that, he's done all of his teaching out in public. He has not only taught uh, clearly, but he has cited and shown over and over again the consistency of his message with the Jewish scriptures. He's given them every reason to accept and to believe him, and yet they remain resistant and skeptical and incredibly hard-hearted to the truth. They are throwing up objection after objection, question after question, justification, really, for their own ongoing disbelief, doing whatever they can to provide some sort of cover for their ongoing resistance to God's rule in their hearts. And, and this has now reached a sort of zenith in Jesus' public ministry, a, a day that is absolutely demonstrating beyond the shadow of a doubt their resolve to continue to resist him. 
Now, it's really in that sort of framework that Jesus brings up here a parable, a parable that reaches into the Old Testament scripture. In fact, it's, it's uh, sort of uh, saturated with references and allusions and uh, other citations of scripture. You see so many here that Jesus is weaving together for the very purpose of showing that their resistance against him is nothing new. It is grounded and, and it grows out of a long history of resistance to God by the Jewish people. They have been rejecting him and they have been rejecting his messengers and they have been rejecting his truth for literally hundreds of years. And so Jesus presents to them this very straightforward story to highlight that truth for them. Let me read it for us as we begin. Beginning in verse 33, Jesus says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. The tenants took his servants and beat one killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants, to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables and perceived that they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Now, as I said, the this, this story here is, is somewhat straightforward. You can understand it in its most basic sense. But what you may not realize is that it has a rich history in, in, the, in the Jewish scriptures, in the Old Testament. In fact, the, 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 the listeners, I'm sure, would have picked up on some of these themes, particularly a reference to the vineyard, because this was a common image in the Old Testament for Israel particularly. And one of the most well-known in all of those Old Testament scriptures was Isaiah chapter 5. In fact, if you have your Bibles, you can flip back to Isaiah. You just sort of open up to the middle of your Bible, to the book of Psalms, and then begin moving to the right, uh, just a few books, and you'll come to Isaiah. And in chapter 5, in verses 1 through 7, you have one of the most memorable uh, images and, and, and really parables 
about Israel. Israel pictured as the vineyard of the Lord. And this is what Isaiah says in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. He looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard than what uh, uh, that I have not done in it, he says. When I look for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down. I will make it a waste and it shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns will grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Now, just reading that, it ought to be obvious the sort of uh, similarities and parallels between that story and the one that Jesus shares. You have all the same sort of elements. You have a vineyard, you have a, a, a wall, a, a hedge that's built around it uh, that way. You have a tower in the midst of it, even a wine vat that's dug out in the middle of the vineyard. And so there are so many similarities that it would be uh, surprising if the listeners didn't draw a connection that Jesus is uh, reintroducing and, and maybe even extending to some extent the, uh, the, the application of this parable. And yet, there are some notable differences that Jesus employs in the telling of the parable. Most particularly here is that in the Old Testament, it was the fruit that was the ultimate failure. But in Jesus' telling, it's not the fruit necessarily, it's the tenants. It's the people who have leased out the vineyard. They're the ones who are the disappointment. Not only that, it is, it is not the vineyard that is destroyed like in the Old Testament, but here it's the tenants themselves who face the judgment. They're the ones who face the severity of God. And so because of all that, there has been a number of questions about what Jesus is doing and how he's referencing this Old Testament story, questions about what exactly is this vineyard, what is it referring to, and maybe more importantly, to whom is Jesus directing this, who are the tenants that he's referring to. It seems obvious, at least in verse 45, that those who were hearing it applied it to themselves. That's what it says in verse 45. They understood, they perceived that these parables were referring to them. That is, at the very least, the Jewish leaders in the temple. But even beyond that, Luke tells us, as Luke records the same parable, Luke tells us in Luke 20, verse 9, that Jesus directed the parable at all the people. All the people who were in the temple that day, all of the Israelites who were there, he was directing this parable at them. And so we clearly understand that the, the, the tenants in the story are Israel. 
They're the ones that have disappointed. They're the ones that are going to be eventually dealt with. This was the core message that Jesus was conveying to them, that they are resistant. They have been resistant. They have failed to respond to God's kindness over and over and over again. And so by way of this parable, he's refocusing, if you will, uh, sort of reusing this parable to focus not so much on God's rejection of Israel, but on his bigger plan for his vineyard, which very clearly we read is the kingdom. That's what you see down in verse 43. This parable, this vineyard is obviously a reference to God's kingdom. And clearly, this kingdom that he's talking about is going to be taken away. The fruit that Israel was supposed to produce hasn't been produced. The, the responsibilities that they have as the tenants, as the occupants, the inhabitants of this kingdom, they have not kept their side of the deal. And so, at least in the immediate future, he is going to expel them, replace them in his kingdom with what he calls literally a new nation. So what you have in this parable is really the big picture of God's response or God's plan for his kingdom in light of Israel's rejection. And it, it unfolds for us in four phases, you might say, uh, of the story that Jesus gives here. The first in, the, in verses 33 through 36, we, we might call Israel revealing their corrupted hearts. That's the first sort of phase of this story, how they demonstrated over and over again their resistant, uh, their defiant, and their corrupted hearts towards God. And it comes by way of this image of the vineyard prepared by the owner with all of the necessary equipment, all of the necessary sort of uh, blessings, all the stuff that was, that was given to make this a successful venture. He built a, a vineyard. He put a, a wall, we're told, around it, which in that uh, situation would not only guard against thieves, but would guard against wild animals who may come in and trample the, the vines or maybe even eat its fruit. They would build this wall by digging up the rock out of the topsoil and stacking it, so thereby purifying the soil itself, but also building up the wall, the hedge around it. On top of that, he built a, a tower in the midst of this vineyard, which would uh, have allowed the owner or the tenants in this situation to not only find shelter during the uh, watches of the night to store their equipment, but they could even get up into the tower, see over the wall to see if there were potentially any thieves or any kind of animals who were a threat to their vineyard. And then maybe most lavishly of all is he dug a wine vat, which typically you didn't do in your own vineyard. You would collect your, your fruits and you would carry them away to someone who had a wine vat because they're very difficult to install. They were dug into the limestone of the ground underneath the topsoil. And so it was quite an endeavor to dig down into that limestone two massive 
pits, one larger than the other, where you would dump all of your, your grapes, and then there would be a, a thin channel running downhill from that into another pit. And so as you um, mashed up the grapes, literally walking on them in the first of those two pits, the juice would gather in that channel and run down and be collected into a lower pit. But as I said, most people didn't have the space or the energy uh, to, to install one of these. But here they had everything, everything that could have been hoped for to have a successful venture uh, in this enterprise. You can imagine someone leasing out for you, whatever it might be, a, a house full of luxuries. I mean, it's just a lavish palace and, and it has every sort of amenity you could have hoped for. It had all of the cupboards stocked full, all of the equipment so that you could not only live there comfortably, but you could host, you could play, you could do whatever you hoped or dreamt. Everything in place to make this a successful venture. This is kind of where the Lord pictures back in Isaiah. And then he begins to ask the question, what more could I have done? What else would have been necessary to make this a successful enterprise, a successful partnership? I gave them this this vineyard and he strikes a deal which would have been common in those days that you as the tenant were able to lease out the vineyard with no upfront cash at all. Your only commitment was that when the, the, when the uh, season comes around that you give the owner a portion of the harvest. All that's remaining, all that's left over, you're able to keep for yourself, not only for your own enjoyment and your own pleasure, but for your own profit. It was almost impossible for them to lose, it would seem. And so as the Lord asked in the Old Testament, it's implied here in the New Testament in this extension of the parable, what else could have been done And the whole image then becomes a a figure, if you will. It becomes a picture of the tremendous blessing that Israel had received. They had been given blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing. They had been given privilege after privilege. Obviously, the privilege of being known as the people of God and having a special relationship with him. He set his affection and love on them unlike any other nation in the world. And he tells them that in Deuteronomy chapter 7. I chose you not because you were most numerous, not because you were the, uh, uh, the, the largest or or, uh, you know, the strongest. In fact, you were the weakest and one of the smallest tribes in all the world. But I set my affection on you. I made you my people. And the... Uh, the implication and the practical outcome of that was the special favor, the special work that God did. Every, everything from dividing the Red Sea as he brought them out of, of Egyptian slavery and, and providing for them in the midst of the wilderness manna from heaven where they could feed themselves every day. He brought them victory in battle bringing down the walls of Jericho miraculously as they entered on the doorstep of the promised land. And as they went from, from village and town to village and town, he gave them victory after victory after victory. 
He supplied them with the judges who delivered them over and over and over again. And then on top of all that, of course, he gave them the law, which he revealed to them and no one else on the face of the earth. He gave them his word that gave them explicit instruction, not only on the way that they could please God in worship, the way to appropriately, appropriately worship God, but, but he gave them instruction on how they could love each other and how they could build a wholesome society, a society that was filled with justice and fairness, a society that was filled with mutual edification, a society that was filled with prosperity. He gave them laws about not only their civil duties, but even specific laws on how to uh, conduct their their business dealings, all kinds of laws that shed all kinds of light on what a righteous and wholesome and blessed life ought to look like. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter 9 when he was talking about Israel. He says to Israel was given adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service and the promises whose are the fathers, from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. So they had all these things. They had the temple. They had the promises. They had hope. They had the promise of the Messiah. God had given them everything that should have and could have allowed them to produce a proper response, a proper response to God a life that's lived not only to his glory, but for their blessing. And yet, what do they do? They spurned all of those good gifts. They spurned them. They uh, refused to show any gratitude, any recognition of all the grace that had been shown to them. And Jesus demonstrates this by extending now the parable when he says the man who planted the vineyard here and had these tenants who were given such favorable terms determines that it is time for him to collect on his investment. And so he, when the season for fruit draws near, he sends his servants to the tenants to get his fruit and the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed one and stoned another. I mean, this is outrageous. I mean, this is outrageous. This kind of ingratitude, this kind of, this kind of behavior, it is shameful. It is criminal. Completely unjustified. It is indefensible that they would treat his servants that way. They had every right, excuse me, every obligation. He had every right to ask of them to fulfill the agreement that they had originally made and they had every duty and obligation to do it, not only because they were tenants and he is the owner, but because apparently they had entered into an agreement to do so. And yet this is what they do whenever the time comes to pay. Nevertheless, in spite of all this ingratitude and in spite of all this hard-heartedness and in spite of all this sort of resistance to 
his rightful place, what happens? Well, even after they treat his servants so shamefully, in verse 36, he sends more. He sends more. More than the first. And they wind up doing the same to him. Now, now this, is, this is why I'm not cut out for landlord work. Um, I, I, would, I would be the guy that, you know, it's like, I send you my messenger to collect the rent and you beat him up and come back to me. And I would say, well, you know, maybe they were in a bad mood. You know, maybe, maybe there's something that's had a bad day and I would send back somebody else. And so, cause I, I you know, I, I would not necessarily do, I'd be taken advantage of in the long run. Let people get away with stuff like this. Well, uh, that's probably what people were thinking when they were hearing Jesus tell this story. Why in the world did he send more? I mean, he should have eradicated, evicted, and absolutely lowered the hammer. If not legally bringing in the authorities, maybe with his own security detail, he should have sent not servants to collect rent, he should have sent troops bodyguards to pound those guys into submission. But that would not really convey the historic detail of how God had responded to Israel. Because in spite of all of their stiff-necked resistance and repudiation, God sent them messenger after messenger after messenger. He demonstrated a loving kindness and patience that was inexplicable in light of what the realities were taking place on the ground. He put himself in a place to be, if you will, abused and taken advantage of. And guess what Israel did? They abused and took advantage of him. They took every kindness that he gave and they threw it back in his face. They took every servant that he sent and they brutalized them or they mocked them or they cast them out. Now, this literally is an image of Israel's past because this is exactly what they did. Every messenger, whether it is Moses at the beginning or John the Baptist at the end, every one of them for their 1400 year history up until that point every one of them had been beaten or stoned or killed it was a long string of history of spiritual rebellion and rejecting God's prophets God's messengers and God's truth they were disgraceful they were they were unjustifiably defiant they mistreated all the people who came to them. Jeremiah, in his own day, records this. In Jeremiah 7, verse 23, God says, I gave, uh, I gave, or this command I gave to them, obey my voice and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in all the way that I command you and it will go well with you. But they did not obey or incline their ear. But they walked in their own counsels and the stubbornness of their own hearts. They went backward and not forward. And from the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, I have persistently sent all my servants, the prophets, to them day after day. And yet they did not listen to me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck and they did worse than their fathers. 
They didn't just resist. They beat and brutalized and killed. Jeremiah himself was tied up and thrown into a soggy pit where he was supposed to be left for dead. It was only as a sort of last second uh, idea to take him as a hostage that they retrieved him out of the pit so that they could carry him down as a, as a, uh, a victim into Egypt where he was, by tradition, we're told, eventually stoned to death. Other prophets after him, Ezekiel was mocked and ridiculed all of his days. Isaiah himself was ridiculed. Amos had to flee for his life. In fact, Isaiah, we're told by history, was sawn in two while alive. This might have been what the writer of Hebrews was referring to in Hebrews eleven thirty seven, where it talks about those great men of the faith that says they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins, in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, wandering around in deserts and on mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. That's how the messengers were treated. God sent them He sent them to graciously call Israel back to their commitments and they steadfastly refused. Later on, right here in Matthew chapter 23, you can see over in verse 29, Jesus, the very same day, I mean, he'll come back to this in just a few hours and he'll make this point again. He'll say in Matthew 23, verse 29, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So they're, they're proclaiming, they're looking back and making their judgment on the past. And they're saying, look, if we had been in those days we would not have participated in the atrocities of all the stuff that they did. If we, it'd be like people today saying, you know, if we had lived back in the days of the Nazis, we would not have joined in in some of their calls to murder people so ruthlessly. If we had been there in the days of Pol Pot, we would have been the courageous and righteous voice standing up and calling out, so that people would walk uprightly. That's the way they viewed themselves in light of their own history. Always exalting themselves. Always justifying themselves. Always assuming that they were better than everyone else. But Jesus says to them there in Matthew 23, verse 31, you witness against yourselves that you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. That is to say, you're the direct lineage. You, you have come down the same line. And he goes on in verse 34, I send you prophets and wise men, scribes, some of whom you kill and crucify, some of whom you flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that, you, uh, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel, that is all the way back to the Garden of Eden or just outside the garden, to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That is all the way at the very end of Chronicles, almost the end of Old Testament history, the entire span. 
you are in that same line. You are that same people. You are resisting as much as they ever resisted. You're no more righteous than them. Why? Because you're resisting Christ. You're resisting the truth. The obvious truth. It's right here before you. I've given you every conceivable reason to believe in me. I've demonstrated my power. I've spoken the the irrefutable truth. Everything I said has been both true and righteous. Everything I said has been consistent with your own scriptures. Everything I have presented to you has given you every reason to believe. And what do you do? You resist. You resist. That kind of brings us here to the second phase of God's plan, which I've already alluded to. It's the second picture in this parable, which is Israel's rejection of the ultimate messenger. In verse 37, this landowner says, finally, He would send his son to them saying, they will respect my son. Uh, If you're listening to this story, you're starting to cringe. Because you're you're wondering how it's going to turn out. They've they've resisted every other messenger. but, 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 But maybe you give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they would not have the audacity to refuse the son of the owner. Surely they would know if they treated him the way they treated everyone else. Surely they would know what would happen. And yet, this is exactly what happens. They saw the son, verse 38, they said to themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Now, that doesn't make any sense. I mean, you can imagine if you're the tenant in a house that you've leased and the son of the owner shows up and you conclude in your mind, hey, if I murder him, then I get the house. Like in what legal system would that ever work out? But that sort of is the point. Nothing that they're doing makes sense, you see? The way that they're reasoning, it doesn't, it's not intended to make sense. It's not, it's supposed to sort of line up in anybody's justice system because nothing that they're doing is just. But it just demonstrates the sort of deranged persistence that they have to resist God, to resist his truth, to resist his messengers, to resist his word. They will attack, they will flog, they will beat, they will attempt to kill anyone, even even his own son, so that they would not have to ultimately comply in their obligations to him. Jesus is saying, you guys... You're demonstrating that you are exactly the same way as all of your forefathers. Just like you. I mean, if you're here today and you are resisting Christ, you can look back and you can imagine, well, if I was walking on the earth, that I saw Jesus do all these things. I certainly would. You know, you would have. You're resisting him now. You would have resisted him then. Because he's given you every reason to believe right now and you still resist him. The issue is not him and what he gave. The issue is in your heart. And the issue's with them. It's in their heart. The owner gave them every reason and all they could show was ingratitude and wickedness and unlawfulness, outrageous resistance. And now just compounding their guilt. They rejected his law. They rejected his word. And now they rejected 
his son. So Jesus asked them a question. What therefore will the owner of the vineyard do? What would you expect when you have responded this way? They said, well, he'll bring those wretches to a miserable end. And he'll lease out his vineyard to other vine growers who will pray, pay him the proceeds in their seasons. They, they understood the justice system. As I said, it's really easy for them to objectively critique and criticize other people. The problem is they just weren't willing to shine the spotlight on their own life. All that brings us to the third sort of phase of this plan, which is his, his punishment of them. Israel receives severe punishment, Jesus says here, or he implies, and he, he does it by quoting to them from their own scripture in verse 42, have you never read in the scripture? This, this is, again, just going at these leaders, these so-called scribes who uh, taught everyone the scripture. They thought they knew the scripture. Had they overlooked this main verse out of Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And this is the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in our eyes. Now you might imagine like what is, he's going off topic here. He's going from a vineyard to a building and a stone and all that stuff. These images don't really align. Well, they do align because they're both talking about the same thing, rejection. Rejection. The, the picture of the story of the vineyard is the picture of rejection. And now the picture here is of builders who are rejecting a stone. And it happens to be the perfect stone. Calling into question their viability or at least their, their uh, uh, qualifications as a builder. They, they couldn't even recognize this cornerstone for what it was. Now, cornerstone is a foundation stone. It was First of all, a stone that that two intersecting walls met at in a corner and it would bear much of the deflected weight of the entire building sitting at the base. Not only that, it was the primary stone by which the builders would set the angles of all the other walls. And so it had to be incredibly straight. It had to be hewn and and, uh, worked to almost perfection, lest the rest of the building be in some way unsound. And so he's picturing here builders who have that kind of stone in front of them, a near perfect stone, a stone that could serve in all of those measures, and they wind up rejecting it, turning away from it. Be like a builder having some perfect plans drawn up with all the right sort of engineering and everything laid out in front of them and they just throw it away, throw it in the fire. They pull out their whatever, their sketchbook and their crayons and they draw something that they consider to be pretty or whatever and set about building that and it has no soundness in it. That's what he's picturing here. These these builders rejected this perfect cornerstone inexplicable why in the world would anybody do that why because they're not legitimate builders because they fancy themselves builders but they don't have the qualifications Jesus takes that passage in Psalm 118 and he 
meshes it together in verse 44 with another passage out of the Old Testament, Isaiah 8, which is a prediction or a prophecy about the coming Messiah. And he would be, we're told, a stone of stumbling over which people will trip and fall and be broken on it. And so he takes these two images about falling on the stone. The one who falls on this stone, verse 44, will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on him, it will be crushed. That's a reference to the cornerstone because these cornerstones were massive. In fact, the cornerstones underneath Jesus' feet that day in the temple that, that are still there today, some of them weigh 250 tons. You can imagine a 250-ton stone falling on you, crushed, pulverized, no hope of escaping. That's what Jesus is saying. You've rejected this stone, and so this stone is going to fall on you. And he's predicting here the destruction of Israel. 37 years after this moment, Israel would be destroyed at the hands of the Romans. They would come, on, come in and not only destroy the nation, but they would eradicate its temple. It would be torn down. And to this day, 2,000 years later, it has never been rebuilt. An image of absolute devastation. This is the rejection that God had foretold even in the Old Testament now coming true Jesus is saying it's going to happen and it's going to be justified it's going to be totally justified well that brings us to a fourth phase then of this plan for God's kingdom that's spoken about here in this parable and it's tucked in there in verse 43 where we see Israel replaced Israel replaced by another nation by genuine believers that's what he says therefore I say to you the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you Israel and it will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it now, the word nation the word ethnos there we have ethnicity from that it's often translated Gentiles so, th so this, this kingdom is going to be taken away from you, Israel, and it's going to be given to Gentile nations who are going to produce the fruit of that. Now, if there's any doubt about what exactly this is talking about, Peter makes it explicitly plain over in 1 Peter chapter 2 when he says in verse 4, citing many of these same scriptures, he says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumbled because they disobeyed the word as they were destined or designed or planned to do. 
So Peter's weaving all these things together and he's saying, look, they rejected, that is to say, Israel rejected their stone. They rejected their cornerstone and because of that, because they rejected that, you now as Gentiles are being built up into a new house, a new priesthood, offering up new spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. They wouldn't. They didn't offer up what was acceptable. You're going to offer up what is acceptable. They wouldn't provide the fruit of the vineyard. You're going to provide the fruit of the vineyard. He goes on to say in verse 9, you're a chosen race. This is all language that was previously applied to Israel. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of that, all of that is language that previously was applied to Israel. And so Jesus is telling them, not only am I going to evict you from this kingdom, cast you out from this kingdom. I'm going to install other tenants in this kingdom. And they are going to be the, the ones who are operating it now. Oh, that would have been scandalous, shocking for any Jew who would have heard. Shocking really for many people even now raises questions of what happened because God had been throughout the Old Testament talking to Israel about how he was going to give them the kingdom. Now, he says he's going to evict them and cast them out. Well, there's a, an additional phase that's of this plan that's not really mentioned here. He kind of cuts us off at the level of eviction and Replacement, But if you go over to Romans chapter 11, you get a, a picture at a future phase of this kingdom, which uh, Paul talks about in Romans 11, verse 11, when he's asking the same kind of questions about Israel's failure and using the same kind of language. He says in Romans 11, 11, so I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. No way, he says. That's not the ultimate end. Rather, their trespass, uh, excuse me, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches of the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So he's saying, yeah, they failed. Yeah, they have stumbled. But I want to project ahead for you and have you ponder for a moment the glory of what would happen if they who have failed were then included again. How much more meaningful would that be, he says. And he goes on then to talk about exactly that very scenario down to verse 17. If some of the branches, again, kind of alluding back to the image of a vineyard, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although uh, or this, in, in this case, I guess a, a, an olive, uh, 
olive plantation, you, a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Do not be arrogant against the branches. If you are, remember, it's not you who support the root, but the root supports you. And then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in, as in like end of story. They were broken off, I was grafted in. That is true, Paul says. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through your faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but kindness towards you, provided you continue in this kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. And then verse 23, and even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in for God has the power to graft them in again. But if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? See, this is a new phase, a phase that's waiting in the future. Right now, we have seen that phase where Israel was broken off and we as Gentiles have become the new tenants in the kingdom. Now the kingdom is operating under the sort of operations, under the management, if you will, of the church. But he's saying there's going to come a day in this kingdom where God is going to graft back in those branches that were broken off. You say, well, well, maybe he's talking about individual Jews. We know that people are coming to Christ and some of them happen to be Jews. And so they're just... They're just a part of the church and they're just being grafted in along with all of us Gentiles. Well, that really doesn't work with Paul's language because he actually speaks about those people being broken off, meaning they were once a part of. So if these are just simply individual Jews who are being grafted in along individual Gentiles, you're going to have to grapple with the image here of them having once been believers, then being broken off only to be grafted back in. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about individual believers. He's talking about the nation. The nation of Israel, it was broken off from God's kingdom, but it will be grafted in again. And so, in the fullness of time, he says, down in verse 25, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery that a partial hardening has come to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then, he says, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. This is God's mercy, you understand? This is the same nation who has given him every reason to abandon them, every reason to cut them off. This is the same nation who rejected every prophet he sent and even killed his own son. And yet, what do we see from the forbearance and the mercy of God? That in spite of all that, he's willing to receive them back. In spite of all that, 
having even evicted them temporarily. When they repent, he will bring them back in. You know, this is a a testimony for every person who has resisted God. Every person who has examined him, the cornerstone, and somehow in your arrogance decided that he's not worthy of your building. You deserve to be crushed. You deserve to be broken. You deserve to be cast out. But the same patience and forbearance that God has shown towards Israel, he shows towards you. That if you will repent, if you will recognize the ingratitude, if you will see how unjust you have treated him, he is so ready to graft you into his kingdom. He is so ready to bring you in to his vineyard and to let you enjoy all the choice benefits that he's prepared all the blessings that he's made ready. They can be yours. You can rejoice in them all of your days if you're willing to humble yourself, confess your rebellion against God, and honor his son. Father, we're grateful for uh, a clear parable clear with so much testimony from history about your patience, lest we somehow think that we have pushed beyond the boundaries, that we have gone further than your patience could take. It's impossible to exhaust your patience. It's impossible to outstrip your love. And so I pray for those who are here today who have been resistant May they hear the message of your call, the kindness of your warnings to once again be beckoned with every, with every prophet and every preacher and along with your son, calling them once again into your kingdom. I pray for them that they would see the fate that awaits them if they continue to resist. But they would also see the welcome that awaits them if they will just turn to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.